following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown. Good morning. If you can hear my voice, you can find your way to your seats, please, and uh, grab your Bible or open your copy of God's Word, analog or digital, whichever. We're back in Jeremiah. And for the remainder of uh, the year, all the way up until summer, we're going to go back and forth between Jeremiah to finish off our study in Jeremiah, which we began last year, and uh, in between that and the Gospel of Luke, which we're going to continue to study together. I also want to point your attention, uh, if you picked up a worship guide this morning, I believe in the inside of that worship guide is a new sermon schedule, courtesy of Taylor. Uh, that's a helpful resource to you. Keep that in your Bible. Uh, keep it with you. Sorry. Sorry, brother. Uh, yeah, just read the Bible ahead of time. Help yourself out. That's, that's the gist of what that's there. You can come ready, read up uh, to, to learn together. Uh, and as the Lord wills, that will be the schedule we're following. So, subject to change as always. And let's begin by prayer, and then we'll, we'll read from Jeremiah 25, and then study together. Father, thank you for this morning and the grace which is new each morning. We pray that through the songs and the prayers so far, our hearts indeed have been tuned to sing thy grace, that we have joined in the chorus of the everlasting truth that the saints sing and know and believe that our God is good, that though we have wandered and are prone to wander, that you have held us, kept us, that you have made us yours and sealed our hearts with your love through the Spirit. We pray that through the next hour of our time and gathering, through study, singing, and continued prayer and fellowship, we would be encouraged and uplifted by your word, comforted by the truths and the promises of Scripture, challenged by the the discipline of your word, and we would be motivated and made to be obedient in light of the truth of your word. And above all, God, we pray that you would fill our hearts with thankfulness and gratitude for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray particularly this morning for those who are not here because of sickness. We pray that you would be encouraged and healed. If they're taking care of loved ones, that they would be patient and servant-hearted as they do so. We pray for those who are not here because they're traveling, their jobs have taken them elsewhere, that they too would be encouraged and find time to pray, perhaps read and, uh, and, and hear, God, your word preached elsewhere. We also pray for Jake, Lord, as he preaches this morning at Sanford Baptist Church, even now, that you would encourage him to speak boldly the truth that you've laid on his heart through your word, and that they too would be apt to hear and receive the preached word of God. We're thankful for all of this, as always, in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 25. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me. 
and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and his evil deeds, and dwell upon the land the Lord God has given to you and your fathers from of old and ever, forever. And do not go after other gods and serve them or worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. And then I will do you no harm. And yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones in the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. And thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its king and officials, to make them a desolation and a waste, a hissing and a curse as at this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his officials, and all his people, and all the mixed tribes among them, all the kings of the land of Uz, and all the kings of the land of the Philistines, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashad, Edom, Moab, and the sons of Ammon, all the kings of Tyre and the kings of Sidon, and the kings of the coastland across the sea, Dedan, Tima, Buz, and all who cut the corners of their hair, all the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of the mixed tribes who dwell in the desert, all the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam, and all the kings of Medea, all the kings of the north, far and near, one after another, and all the kingdoms of the world that are on the face of the earth. After them, the king of Babylon shall drink. And then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink. Be drunk and vomit, fall and rise no more because of the sword that I am sending among you. And if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You must drink. For behold, I begin to work disaster at the city that is called by my name, and shall you go unpunished? 
You shall not go unpunished, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. You therefore shall prophesy against them all these words and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high and from his holy habitation utter his voice. He will roar mightily against his fold and shout like those who tread grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. The clamor will resound to the ends of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh, and the wicked he will put to the sword, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, disaster is going forth from nation to nation, and a great tempest is stirring from the furthest parts of the earth. And those pierced by the Lord on that day shall extend from one end of the earth to the other. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried, but they shall be dung on the surface of the ground. Wail, you shepherds, and cry out, and roll in ashes, you lords of the flock, for the days of your slaughter and dispersion have come. You shall fall like a choice vessel. No refuge will remain for their shepherds, nor escape for the lords of the flock. A voice, the cry of the shepherds, and the wail of the lords of a flock, for the Lord is laying waste to their pasture. And the peaceful foes are devastated because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Like a lion, he has left his lair, for their land has become a waste because of the sword of their oppressor and because of his fierce anger. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jeremiah 25 marks the middle of the book of Jeremiah and sort of the, the turning point in his ministry. If you've read through the book of Jeremiah before, you may notice that the first half so far of the book of Jeremiah has been mostly his teaching. It's, it's been the message that he has been called to preach both to Judah and to the nations, the nations that come against God and Judah, his own people, which have rebelled against him, their king, in exchange for the serving of other false gods and the kowtowing to other nations and their kings, taking upon them their culture, their ways of life, their idolatries. And God has sent Jeremiah to warn them, to speak to them a message of urgent warning that unless they turn from their ways, God's judgment will fall upon them. Not simply because he's angry or he has run out of patience, but because they have run out of time. Know that God had entered into covenant with Judah and with all of Israel. A covenant is a promise that God makes with his people. That says, if you live this And the covenant that God had entered into with Israel stipulated that they must obey the law that he had given to them. And if they continue to do so through generation to generation, he will bless them. He will keep them in the land that he gave to them. He will cause them to flourish and thrive. They need only to look at King David and the kingdom under his rule of the majesty and the glory that Israel had achieved at that point to see just what God was able to do when they fulfilled his covenant. And God on his part would always fulfill his, would always give, would always bless. But if they failed to to hold up their end of the covenant, God would not bless but curse. And this is exactly what was happening in Israel. Instead of following the law, instead of teaching themselves to obey what God has taught them, instead of parents passing on what God has commanded to their children, they turned their hearts and their ways 
to the other nations. They said, we don't want God in his law. We want this God. We want these ways of worship. We want these religious practices. We want to feel this way and look this way. We want to fit in. We want to belong. We want to be accepted by the other nations around us. We're small and young, and though we are great, we are still small in number. So the pressure and the temptation to turn and slowly give way to idolatry led them, little by little, to fall under the condemnation and the curse of God's wrath. That's what was promised to them if they did so. And this began immediately after King David. His own son, Solomon, would turn his heart and take on many, many wives. And in order to please them and to keep them happy, their own gods, their deities, their worship. And it wasn't far after that that the kingdom was divided into two, fell into ruin. A hundred years before Jeremiah's writing to Judah, Israel, the northern tribes, had already fallen to Assyria, the largest nation at the time. Here, Jeremiah is now warning the last tribe, Judah, there in the south, the holdout, that they too are following the same path and trajectory of their sister Israel. But there is a way that they are approaching the red line, but as of yet, they haven't crossed it. If they turn from their wicked ways, if they repent from their evil ways, if they turn aside from their idolatries and false worship, if they simply return to the Lord and his word, he would spare them the judgment that would to come. He would relent, he says, of the calamity he would bring upon them. He would be their God. They again would be his people. But eventually, Judah crosses the line. Judah, Judah crosses the point of no return. And God, though it pains him, even in his own heart, resistant at times to bring judgment upon his own people, demands, his own conscience demands that he must deal with sin and deal with Judah. As we study this chapter and sort of the turning point of where everything really comes to a head for Judah, and all that Jeremiah has been warning begins to take place, and the rest of the book telling the stories that fulfill the prophecies and the message that Jeremiah has been preaching in the first half of the book, we have a lesson we can learn. That when the red line of God's patience is finally crossed, what should you and I expect? The sermon this morning is somewhat tongue-in-cheek, titled, So You Provoke the Wrath of God, Now What? Because this was the position that Judah found themselves in. Jeremiah now says, this is it. I've sent prophets to you. Prophet after prophet, message after message, begging you to turn your way. But you did not listen. You doubled down. You drove your heels into the ground. And now you have provoked God and his anger. When you cross that red line, what should you expect? Are you able to find your way back? Is there a way Return to God's good graces. And, and, and if so, who will help you do it? This is the midpoint of Jeremiah's scrolls, and these questions become alarmingly relevant to Judah, who now is staring down the barrel and facing the prospect of God's judgment by bringing upon them the northern tribes or the northern nations, chief among them Babylon, in a very real and devastating way. 
they're learning now that Jeremiah's warnings and prophecies have teeth. They weren't empty threats, but that the king of Babylon was now coming. And he wouldn't come in, knock, and ask if he could take over. But he would conquer them, destroy them, tear down the temple, bring them into exile. Many would starve, die, be killed. Many would be forced to flee, live in poverty, under the terror and the reign of another nation. This is what Jeremiah says is coming. And there's two watchwords that I want us to pay attention to as we study. The first is service, and the second is justice. The first is service, and the second is justice. Concerning the first, see that the, the theme of really the first 14 verses here is that of service, particularly who serves whom. The original part of the covenant was that Israel serves God, and God blesses Israel. But there's been a mix-up. Israel no longer serves God. Instead, we see that he has called other nations to serve him at his ends and purposes, and Israel would then serve those nations. Service to God becomes the central theme of why God comes against them in anger. They do not serve, love, worship, or delight in God, their Lord, the Father of their nation, the King of their covenant. And this passage here corresponds with two major events that concerns Judah's fate. And we can see that in the very beginning when it says that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah. That's the current king of Judah, Jehoiakim. He's really the last king before captivity. And it says there in parentheses, you can see, during the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Now, you may be more familiar with Nebuchadnezzar from the other prophets like Daniel where he brought Daniel and the other friends into his court, and he was amazed at what God was doing in their presence. But before we even get to that here, we see that two things have happened. The fourth year of King Jehoiakim and the first year of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Now, concerning Nebuchadnezzar, we need a bit of history to understand what we mean by the first year. Now, you may need a reminder, as I do, that in B.C., the word, the years go down as they get closer to us. So we start in 605, and we go to 604, 603, and so on down to zero. It's hard sometimes to switch it backwards. But in 605, Nebuchadnezzar, not yet king, led the army of Babylon to conquer the Assyrian and the Egyptian armies, which were both waning in their power. They used to be wrong superpowers. Now they were waning. Babylon, under King Nebuchadnezzar, under Nebuchadnezzar at this time, destroyed them, conquered them. Babylon becomes the superpower. His father dies and Nebuchadnezzar assumes the throne. So now he's king, and he's the greatest superpower perhaps the world has ever known, the greatest army and biggest empire to that day on the world. He comes to power. He's defeated the Assyrian and the Egyptian powers at the Battle of Carchemish, and is now here by Jeremiah identified as the very threat that he had said would come from the north, the one that he's been warning about, these armies and these nations from the north that come at the gates of Jerusalem. So Nebuchadnezzar comes to power, and in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, we learn that he crosses the line. Later we'll read about this, but in chapter 36 of Jeremiah, he records the same story that the message here pertains to. Jehoiakim 
burns Jeremiah's scroll, which is sent to him to hear the warnings, this very warning that they did not listen, but they should, lest the Lord's judgment comes upon them and the armies of the north come against them. Jehoiakim, instead of listening and heeding the warning of Jeremiah and of Barak, his servant, he burns the scroll, he cuts it into pieces, and he throws it into the fire, refusing to heed its warning. And this signals the callousness of his and the people's hearts. This is the red line that Jehoiakim leads his people to cross before the Lord. He seals God's judgment to come at this point. I'm just going to read the relevant passage there in Jeremiah 36. This is verses 37 through 31. It says that now after the king, that's Jehoiakim, had burned the scroll with the words that Baruch had written at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Take another scroll and write on it the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, had burned. And concerning Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, you shall say, Thus says the Lord, You have burned this scroll, saying, Why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and will cut it off from man and beast? Mocking God's word as it will. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, he shall have none to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast into the heat by day and the frost by night. And I will punish him and his offspring and his servants for their iniquity. And I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the people of Judah all the disaster that I have pronounced against them, but that they would not hear. So notice what's happening. Two things simultaneously takes place. Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, who should be heeding God's word, is given a scroll by Jeremiah, the prophet of God, that says, turn from your evil ways, repent, and return to the Lord. He takes the scroll, cuts it to pieces, throws it in the fire. He says, how dare you even think that anyone could come against us? Meanwhile, Babylon takes control of the empire. King Nebuchadnezzar comes and sets its eyes on Jerusalem. The line has been crossed. And so here Jeremiah gives the warning, not just to the king, but to all of the people. It says to gather all of the people, it says in verse 2. He spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So notice, it's not just now the message to Jehoiakim, the king, and to the other leaders, but now to all of the people. I have sent you prophets, God says. I have given you warnings. I have told you, but you did not listen. And now you have provoked me to anger. The anger has been fanned into flame. The flame is now white hot, and now it will consume you. Notice the cycle here of service that was distorted, that provoked God's wrath and anger. We see that in verses 6 and 7, instead of serving God, Judah turns from God and serves the idols of the other nations. They were warned in verse 6, do not go after other gods to serve them and to worship them or to provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Notice that service comes in a multitude of fashions. It's not just service in the sense that they come to a service like you are at a church service. You don't come to a church service to be served, but you know that by worshiping you serve. You serve whom you worship. So it is your heart's affection which is being caught up in the person you've come to worship, or the deity or the God, or the idol in this case. So you serve 
and you worship the wrong God. But you also perform actions, duties, works with your hands in service to that God. We saw earlier in the previous chapters that part of the works was the sacrificing of children to Moloch. So the work of their hand, the affections of their hearts, the attention of their minds came before not God, not the Lord of Israel, but to the false gods of these other nations. However they named this God or called this God, whatever pretense they thought they were coming to worship Israel, the God of Israel, they indeed were coming and offering worship to a false God. So Judah turns and he begins to serve these idols. Well, once that cycle begins, it's hard to break. So instead of serving God, they serve idols. But the next line in this cycle is that Nebuchadnezzar then is called to serve God. For God will be served. As he has said elsewhere, that if others do not worship God, the rocks themselves will be made to cry out. In this case, God calls the other nations, and particularly even King Nebuchadnezzar, to worship him, to serve him. Now, to be fair, he doesn't know he's doing this. In many ways, he's simply being used by God. Unbeknownst to him, he is serving God's ends and purposes. But we see very clearly it is God who calls Nebuchadnezzar to the actions and the work that he then performs upon his own will. He calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. Now, here's some tragic irony in the case that those who are reading and hearing this would surely pick up and understand. The irony is that there is a Davidic king on the throne, Jehoiakim. And remember the promise made to David that he is their servant and that a man of David's throne will always be king, whose kingdom will last forever. But here we see that Jehoiakim's reign will end and there will not be another one of his line who sits on the throne again. It is while the Davidic king of Jehoiakim rebels against God rather than serves God, we see that the rebel king, Nebuchadnezzar, comes to serve God and is called by God, my servant. This term may mean little to us, but it is a term often used for the likes of men like Abraham and Moses and Isaiah and especially King David, a man after God's own heart, the very jewel and the crown of Israel's glory. And likewise here, Yahweh says, who once instructed Israel that he must, they must devote their enemies to destruction, now calls Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon to devote Jerusalem to destruction. They are now the ones devoted to destruction, not their enemies. And they are devoted to destruction at the hands of their enemies. Do you see the cycle now twists in subtle and tragic irony the work of service that Israel was to give to God? So Judah serves idols. Nebuchadnezzar serves God. And as a result of this, Judah, instead of serving God, then becomes a servant of Babylon, carted off to serve in their courts and in their fields, now becomes a state of Babylon, not independent, but governed by the king. There in verse 11, we're told that this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. And we learn under Daniel that that time gets extended. So they are in exile serving a false king who worships a false god who is in his own way, unbeknownst to him, truly serving the one god because they refuse to do it themselves. Yet the cycle will continue. 
We see just after that in verse 12 that after those 70 years or after the time of exile happens, he will come and give justice. He will punish the king of Babylon and the nation and the land of the Chaldeans for all their iniquities against them and all the other nations that came against Israel and against God. It says that at some point, even Babylon will serve other nations and Judah itself. It says very clearly, verse 14, that even many nations and great kings shall make slaves of them. So the cycle will continue. Though they fall, they will rise again. Nebuchadnezzar will come to serve Judah, and Judah ultimately will be restored again to serve God. I will recompense them according to their deeds and to the work of their hands. The future of the picture that Jeremiah is painting is, because Judah failed to serve God and instead served idols, God calls Nebuchadnezzar to serve him himself. Nebuchadnezzar will then come and bring Judah under servitude to them, and yet Nebuchadnezzar eventually will fall to serve Judah when God restores them, and Judah again will serve God. This is the cycle. This is the picture. And the cycle is repeated many times in the Old Testament in Israel's history, isn't it? We see a pattern where God calls Israel to serve them. They do for a time, then they turn, then they fall. They're led into captivity or they have some calamity come upon them. And they're led into some distress. And then they repent. They return from their ways. And then they serve God again. And then the cycle continues. They turn from their service to God back into idolatry or to sin. And then God judges them, disciplines them until they return and are restored again. But this pattern and this cycle is also akin to the pattern and the cycle of sin and repentance that we experience as Christians. There's the same sort of cyclical nature of our wandering, isn't there? Of course, I want to say that, as we'll see in just a few moments, it's not the same sort of cycle for a few important reasons, and we'll get to that in a minute. But we have a same sort of pattern of wandering from obedience, of then experiencing at God's providential use of our disobedience and of our sin something that brings about our humility. And then he begins to restore us to a spirit of repentance and of restoration. And for a time, then, we walk in light of that truth and in light of the glory and in light of that repentance. But because our hearts are prone to wander, as we sang, we then begin to step offline again. We begin to entertain more thoughts or to be tempted by more desires and eventually find ourselves back into the same old habit or entertaining a new one. And so it begins. We must be humbled by God. He disciplines us, and then we find ourselves repenting and restored. This pattern is not unique to Israel or to us because we are humans. It is of all humankind necessary to experience. Those who desire to follow God will at the same time find themselves misstepping, stumbling along the way. But know then that it is God's discipline which restores us back to the path of obedience, not our own willpower or self-correction. You and I live in a culture where we are told that we can discipline ourselves to the point where we have everything under control, that we can pull ourselves up from our bootstraps. But the reality is God disciplines those whom he loves, and the only path back to freedom and righteousness is through discipline. This is why we discipline our children. Now, we can discipline our own, our own children and ourselves in a particular way that reminds us and keeps us on the right path. Spiritual disciplines like reading the Bible, prayer, coming to church, meeting with other Christians, all of the good necessary graces are disciplines like a bodybuilder would discipline his body or preparation 
of an athlete for a competition. But it is God's discipline and God's correction which leads us back to the path of righteousness. So yes, there is a wandering from obedience, but it is God's use of that disobedience which humbles us, brings us to repentance, and forms the basis of our restoration again to union with God. Now again, a theological point should be made that for those who are in Christ, this is not a falling out of union with God in the sense that we no longer are saved. Instead, this is a being right in a relationship being restored to God as if two friends or a father and a son had broken a relationship through sin or disobedience in it. Does the father cease to be his father or the son cease to be the son? No. But the relationship was restored when one repents to the other. And so it is when we sin against God. Do we lose our union with Christ because of sin? No. For Christ's union with us is permanent by faith. But our relationship is broken and needs to be restored through repentance. So perhaps this morning you feel distant from God or cold in your prayer because you have not yet repented and restored yourself into relationship with God. You've taken for granted, well, surely as a Christian, I must always have union with God and intimacy with God. But the reality is, if you continue in sin or entertain small ideas of idolatry or wanderings of your heart, then that will indeed grow cold. We've experienced this in any relationship we've had. When we go for days or weeks without speaking with one another or drawing close to one another and having meaningful relationships with one another, then that relationship can go cold. Or when we've been hurt or wounded by another person, the temptation is to give the person the cold shoulder. Or when our children have disobeyed us or hurt us, or when we have sinned against our children, often we see the relationship become strained. And what is needed to put that back on right footing? Confession, repentance. We have not lost the heart of that relationship, but we have lost the zeal and the intimacy that it brings. And so here we must recognize that if we draw closer to sin, we are drawing further away from God. And all that is needed is to return, is to renounce the sin, confess it, and we are welcomed again to God's grace. And so we are often made humbled by God, by the ignition and recognition and acknowledgement of our sin, our repentance, and then our restoration. And so the idea here of service is really clear, that you must serve God by drawing near to him, worshiping him, serving him with your hands and with your heart, and not to idols. Yet this cycle often keeps us going back and forth as it did here with Judah. But eventually, the cycle led Judah into destruction. But for us, it leads us to understand the nature of God's wrath and his justice. And that's the second leg of the text here we'll study. And the last part of verses 15 through 38, we are focused here on God's act of justice. And there's five things we need to understand about God's wrath if we are to walk away and think of verse, uh, these verses as a sort of call for our new year. We understand firstly that God's wrath in this text and in always is justified. That God is justified in his anger. Maybe you don't like to get angry. You think in your sense, as it almost always is, a sin to be angry. And therefore, when you consider the anger of God, you see it as a negative thing. You see it as a power trip. But God is justified in his anger. His wrath and enmity against those who rebel against him is 
justified. Here's the objection I've heard before as a pastor. Maybe you've heard it before as a Christian. That it's not right or fair that God would punish people or even punish nations for something that they cannot control, like their sinfulness. Or that it's not fair that he would punish them for something that he made them do. Like here, Nebuchadnezzar serves God by destroying Judah. And yet, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon will be destroyed because they destroyed Judah. Obviously, it's a bit immoral and, frankly, a bit schizophrenic for God to be this way. That's the objection you typically hear. Have you heard something like that before? Maybe you've thought that before? I'm going to give you two answers to this objection. There are others. For all those who need apologetic help, that is defense of the faith, I would point you to uh, our brother John, who's uh, well-versed in those arguments. The first answer to this objection is that you misunderstand man's relationship to sin. You misunderstand man's relationship to sin. Man, and by man I mean man and woman, okay? It's 2024 almost, but I think we can get along with that. Man is not passive in the work of sin. Like that's just a claim of the Bible, and I need you to accept it here. The man is not passive in the work and activity of sin. Mankind is actively nurturing, feeding, and gratifying sin's desires and its appetites and its impulses. We are not simply led by our sin. We are not simply prisoners in sin's captivity. We are active participants in the crimes sin commits against God's. We are co-conspirators, or we may say, in other words, that we cannot separate man or woman from their sin. Have you heard the phrase, hate the sin, love the sinner? I think that brings to the surface a false dichotomy. What the Bible teaches about man and its relation to sin, that there is no difference between sin and the sinner before God and his judgment. And we recognize that all people are made in the image of God and we're not made to sin. That sin is just not only a violation of God's command and laws, but a violation of their own nature as being made in the image of God. But as we stand before God, we stand guilty as sinners, not as victims of sin. That is the first thing we must learn. Man is not victim of sin, but is the culprit of the crime he commits and the sins he imbibes. So when those who raise an objection to God that says, your wrath and your anger on this scale is not necessary. Sure, you can be angry, I disobeyed, slap on the wrist. But destruction, judgment, hell for all eternity, that's a bit of an overreaction. You're the one who made me sin. You're the one who told this guy to do this. They misunderstand man's relationship to sin in the first place. You and I are not simply victims, but we are the perpetrators. We cannot separate man from his sin. The former is completely and utterly consumed by the other. This is why we say often that man is totally depraved, meaning that there is not a part of you, man, that is not in some sense affected, perverted, or diseased by sin. That's not a popular message, and perhaps you go down the street into their church, you will not hear them say anything like that. Maybe they won't even speak of sin. But the reality is God's wrath can only be good and his wrath and anger can only be just against us 
if we are culpable of the crimes he's com- he says we've committed. Otherwise, he is indeed unjust. But we misunderstand man's relationship to sin when we think he is unjust for punishing us or disciplining us or sending some to hell because of sin. But the second objection to this is that we have misunderstood God's relationship to sin. Not only do we misunderstand man's relationship to sin and his active participation in sin, but we've completely misunderstood God's relationship to sin if we think that he's really the culprit. He's the one who made us do it. He's the one who knew, of course, we'd fall into sin, and therefore really isn't it his fault. It's such a childish reasoning, but we need to come to grips with this. God using sin, your sin, for his ends and purposes is not the same thing as him sinning or creating and causing you to sin. We need to understand that God in his sovereignty is able to bend all things that happen under his sovereign control to his purposes and ends, while at the same time not being guilty of that sin. Partly this is because you have a too small of an understanding of God himself, that it doesn't make sense to you that God can act in such a way that leaves him righteous, though participant in the work of the world that includes sin. He is not the author of sin, nor did he create it, even if he is sovereign over it, even if he ordained that it would come to pass. Of course, God knew in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam would transgress against his law, that sin would enter in the world, that all humanity would fall, that creation would come under a curse. Of course he knew that. He planned it. But it is not the same thing as him having caused it, having created it, and therefore is guilty or responsible for it. This is a much bigger can of worms to get into. And again, I want to point you to your other elder, Jacob, to answer all the hard questions, or to John for the best arguments of navigating this. But we need to understand God's relationship to sin does not leave him guilty or culpable for it. That God is righteous, and any interaction he has with sin is always just, perfect, righteous, and good. And if he uses sin, your sin, for his purposes, there is, in a sense, we can say that he actually redeems sin. So the objection that it's not fair or right that God would punish not just a nation but a people to hell is unwarranted because to make that objection, you must first misunderstand man's relationship to sin. Man is actually guilty, and you misunderstand God's relationship to sin, that he is actually and really righteous. And so what we need to understand to put that into perspective for you is that God's wrath and his anger against sin, and in this case, bringing upon judgment on Judah through Babylon, is a demonstration and is a demand of his justice. It's a demand of his justice. If God is to be just, righteous, upright, moral, with integrity, he is demanded that he deals with sin and punish it. If he was truly his own sin, he would punish himself. But he recognizes because he is righteous that man's sin is man's alone. And though he may use sin for his purposes, he does so righteously. God's wrath, therefore, is a demonstration and a demand of his justice. His anger and his wrath is not the uncontrolled fury of a seething deity who's lashing out because he didn't get what he wanted, because his children won't behave. Maybe some of the dads can relate to that picture. But that's not the anger of the Lord. Instead, it is a righteous 
in a fitting response of a holy God, a righteous God, to the perversion and the wickedness of an unholy people. We could ask, ask another answer to that objection, that you don't even understand the nature of sin and the magnitude of offense it is to a holy God. Here's what I want to say. If you want to be a thinking person, rational, you must come to learn how to take God and therefore God's wrath seriously. It is not enough to picture God in your mind as a happy-go-lucky deity who only wants your best. He is wrathful and vengeful against unrighteousness. And though he is patient and kind, do not mistake his patience and kindness for the causing or the allowing of sin. He will answer. Your sin, my sin, the world's sin will come under judgment. We must take God's judgment, God's wrath, and God's character himself very seriously, which means you must study to know this God. He's multifaceted. He's unsearchable and unfathomable in his depth, and yet he invites us to learn that this is a God who is both real and near, but also righteous. And so therefore lies the problem. A righteous God who draws near to a sinful people means that he has to deal with sin. And he deals with it one of two ways. By our condemnation and judgment and everlasting torment in hell. Or the fulfillment of prophecy of Christ's death on the cross who takes on the penalty of our sin. The world will be split into two at the last day. One who has been covered by the blood of Christ, whose wrath against sin has been satisfied by him. And those who will deal with God's wrath against sin in eternity for hell. Both of those are just. Both of those are a fitting answer of a righteous God to an unholy people. Okay, the rest is really on the same tone, so we're not getting any lighter here. God's wrath is justified. Secondly, God's wrath is imminent. Look in verses 28 and 29. It says that if they say don't drink, if they refuse to do it, then you shall tell them that God says you must drink. For behold, I begin a work of disaster at the city that is called by my name, and do you think that you're going to be exempt, is what he says? Shall you go unpunished? No, you shouldn't. For I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord. And he says that you must drink. God's wrath is imminent in the sense that it is near and that it will prevail. How fleeting life is. You are one breath away from standing before God and having to answer for your sin. That's how imminent and near God's wrath against sin is. For those who are not in Christ... The answer will be judgment. But for you and I, if we are in Christ, we may get to say, God, the Son of God's blood covers me. I am declared righteous, not by my works, but by God's Son's works. Justice must prevail. In other words, God will act. And the moment that he acts will be the righteous, imminent justice of God. I'm going to move quickly. Third God's wrath is exhaustive. Continue to see Jeremiah's response in verses 30 33. Therefore shall prophesy against them all these words and say. Notice what it says, just the breadth of the exhaustiveness of God's wrath in verse 30. That all the inhabitants of the earth will experience this. He says that God's wrath will go to the ends of the earth and against all nations there in verse 31. God's wrath will go forth from nation to nation and to the farthest parts of the earth in verse 32. And it says in verse 33, 
from one end of the earth to the other. So just notice the, the exhaustive breath of God's wrath on mankind, not just Judah at this point, but to all of mankind that this cup of God's wrath will be poured out on that they must drink. It is exhaustive. Here's the thing to ask. Who's exempt from God's wrath? None of us. Why? Well, if you're a good Christian, you know, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As I tell my children, what does the Greek word for all mean? All. Literally, just all. None are exempt. Or as Romans would tell us earlier in chapter there are none who are without excuse. We read this morning. So who is exempt from God's wrath? None, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what is the wages of sin? Again, the good Christian will answer, Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin are death. So if you sin, you deserve death. So all are condemned before God. There is none who is exempt there is none who is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned, or as Isaiah says, all have, like sheep, been led astray, each one following his own way. The picture the Bible paints of the breadth of God's wrath is the same picture it paints of the breadth of sin to the ends of the earth. And so if God is just, his wrath must also extend as far as sin is found. And yet we sing, as we did this past Christmas, that Christ's redemption lifts the curse, the famous line is, as far as the curse is found. So there is no depth of sin, that the grace of God is not deeper still, it's been said. Who is exempt from God's wrath? None for all have sinned, therefore all are condemned. Therefore, because we sin, God must wrathfully discipline all sin, and those alone who experience the redeeming qualifications of Christ's death, resurrection, and faith in him do not experience the wrath, but instead is salvation. More on that in a minute. But it's exhaustive not only in its breadth, but also in its depth, because it's not just how wide his wrath is, but also how deeply exhaustive it is. It says that the cup of wrath will be completely emptied. It says to the dregs. That means just nothing left but the little bits. You ever drink a cup of coffee at a French press and you're done and there's like all the little coffees at the bottom? That's what's left. Just the stuff you can't actually drink. The point is that everything goes down the hatch when it comes to God's wrath. All sin is going to be dealt with. There is none which remains unturned from the cruelest of offenses, murder, rape, genocide, you name it, all the way down to the smallest of infractions. Okay, so kids, if you're listening, got my daughter's eye, I want you to heed this lesson. The small sins that you think are appropriate, the little lies you may tell your parents, maybe the ways you emulate your parents in their small sins, parents, they are most certainly not acceptable. A small sin is a big deal. As much as you think the worst of sins are, murder, killing, stealing, I want you to think of the same thing about small sins. Think of a lie like you think of a murder, because you murder the truth. I want you to think of a failure to give freely and receive, in the same way you would think of someone stealing a million dollars from a bank. When you speak a harsh word against your brother or your sister or your friend, think of it as the same thing as hurting your brother or sister with your hands or your fists. 
The smallest of sins are enough to put you under the discipline of God. Not just the worst things you can imagine. As much as you think the worst sins are, the same will be true of the smaller ones. And it will surely be the smaller sins which add up and stack up against you. No one wakes up and decides that they want to commit the most heinous thing they can think of unless they are truly deranged. But it is often the smaller sins that lead us by varying degrees to the wrath of God. Psalm 75 verse 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Know that God's wrath is exhaustive. It's exhaustive in its breadth, that there are none who are exempt, and exhaustive in its depth, and that there is not one sin which will not answer to the wrath of God. Okay, hope I have sufficiently stoked the fear of the Lord in you. A few more, just to keep going. The wrath of God is justified, eminent, exhaustive, and fourthly, it is terrible. I begin already to paint the picture of the terribleness of God's wrath, but I want us to understand that sin of course, is destructive to us, destroys our relationship, destroys our relationship to God and to others and to the world. But God's wrath is totally devastating to us. Sin, of course, may destroy parts of our relationships. It may destroy our walk. But it is God's wrath alone which would just totally destroy and devastate. It says this in verse 37. The Lord is laying waste to these pastures of the flocks. The peaceful folds are devastated because of the fierce anger of the Lord. There is a complete and total destruction that comes. The pictures of God's wrath and hell in the book of Revelation paint a very vivid reality. It says that those who drink the wrath, the God's cup of wrath, will be tortured in heaven, or in hell rather, the place of conscious everlasting torment, and the smoke of their torment will go up forever. Jesus has said that hell is a place of fire, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And regardless, however, we paint that picture in our mind, and various artists and poets have tried, it is so certainly much, much worse than you're imagining. The question I have for you, are you troubled by the prospect of God's wrath? I think, Christian, maybe you answer that question a little differently. No, I'm not. Praise God, Christ absorbs the wrath of God for me. But does the reality of God's wrath against unrighteousness of the world, of your loved one, of your husband, your wife, your brother, your sister, your co-worker, your family, your neighbor, are you troubled by the prospect of God's wrath? Or how about just his anger at your sin? Is there a reverent fear? By reverent, I mean a respectful fear of God's anger. I mean, parents don't let their kids play, hopefully, with the electrical socket. Because parents know what kids don't. They stick something in there, something terrible could happen. Even the worst could happen. Death. But God says he comes out like a lion from the lair, ready to devour sin and unrighteousness and all wickedness. He roars and consumes in righteousness all sin. Do you understand rightly the wrath of God to the extent that when you sin, you are distraught and troubled by it? 
even if you can in one hand say, God will not bring wrath against me because Christ has taken it. Do you recognize that your sin is an offense to a holy God? Or do you consider the wrath of your neighbor who does not know Christ as not just detrimental to them, but devastating to them in their soul? God's wrath is terrible. But I want us to end this way. God's wrath is satisfied in Christ. God's wrath is satisfied in Christ. Friends, the the beautiful picture of the gospel is that Jesus drinks fully to the last drop beyond the dregs the cup of God's wrath. He drinks it to completion. Know what Jesus says in the garden as he prays, the garden of Gethsemane. He prays, God, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. What cup is he talking about? He's talking about the same cup of God's wrath that he was given to drink for you and I, for the sins of those who would place their faith in him. But he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus goes to the cross, suffers death by drinking God's wrath against sin, your sin and my sin. Therefore, God's wrath is satisfied. His anger is abated. His righteousness prevails. This is why we are told that God is both the just, he is just in dealing with sin, and the justifier of the ungodly because Jesus stands in between us as our intermediator. We sang earlier, that Jesus interposed his precious blood. That means between God's wrath and us, Jesus' blood covers us, stands in our place. He substitutes himself. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath, and therefore Jesus breaks that cycle of servitude. Remember the one where we are walking with God but then turn to serve other gods or serve to turn the lusts of our flesh and the desires of our bodies? And then we find ourselves being humbled by God using that sin or using that disobedience or bringing some other thing to, to bring us to repentance. And then we're finally restored and that cycle goes on. But in Christ, he allows us to break that cycle fundamentally and forever by making the last phase of that cycle, the restoration phase, permanent. No longer will our hearts fully and truly wander away from God to idols, but we are, by God's grace, fixed upon Christ. Day by day, being restored and made glory to glory more in the image of Christ, our God. So know this, that although God's wrath is very real and against sin, in Christ, God's wrath is satisfied. That means if you have any hope to escape God's wrath, I know I'm talking to mostly a room full of Christians, but I don't want to presume. If you have any hope of of avoiding God's wrath, the answer is only found in Christ. It is faith in Christ. Has Christ suffered for your sin? Is his death sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God against your sin? Will all those who take heed of the warning that judgment comes for them, looks to Christ as their answer, and throws themselves upon that mercy, will they avoid God's wrath? The answer is yes and amen. They break the cycle of falling constantly into temptation, serving other gods or serving their own flesh, and they serve God permanently restored by the work of Christ. And so lastly, we must recognize that God's wrath does not rest on believers any longer. But it does remain on those who persist in the rebellion. Do you know somebody who's not a Christian? And have you told them that their soul is in jeopardy of everlasting torment? But God's wrath does not rest on believers. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. That should be a precious truth to you. Tell it to yourself when you sin. Tell it to your children when you sin. Tell it to all those who profess Christ when they sin against you. 
Brother, sister, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It does not rest on believers, but on those who find themselves persistent in rebellion, it will come to them. Secondly, we must remember that God's wrath is a source of comfort for believers. That's strange to say after I've just really brought us all down with talking about God's wrath and anger, but really we should be comforted by this because God is just and he deals with sin. But it should be a sober warning to those who reject his lordship. God's wrath means that all those who sin against us and all those who prevail against the church will not ultimately prevail. God's justice ultimately prevails and it will flow like rivers. But for those who reject the Lordship of Christ, God's wrath should not be comforting, but should be terrifying. It should sober them to repentance. And lastly, as it is New Year's Eve, I want you to consider this as you plan for the future, if you're the kind of people who do that. Know that being spared from God's wrath is a grace that should radically transform the way you live. It should change you. It should should transform you. If you're a Christian this morning, you've been spared from the wrath of God because of the death of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead means that you have an assurance that you've been spared from the wrath of God. You should live in such a way and make decisions in such a way and give your life in 2024 in such a way that showcases and demonstrates that you are not under condemnation and therefore you make bold decisions for Christ. You walk faithfully and confidently where he leads. You say no to sin. You break habits, not because you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but because you recognize that Christ alone has broken the cycle of sin and shame. The temptation no longer has its power. Death does not have its sting. There is no victory in the grave. Therefore, you, O Christian, can live confidently. Make your plans and live your life in the truth that God's wrath and anger, the real, has turned from you because of Christ. Okay, let's pray. Well, Father, we... uh, We acknowledge that we are sinners. And as sinners, we deserve wrath. Your anger against sin is justified. It's righteous and it's just. But thanks to God that we have been saved. And we do not drink the cup of God's wrath, but we drink from the cup of salvation. God's blood, Christ's blood has been interceded for us. He stands as our substitute. Though I have spoken at length about this much longer than I have given myself time to do, there's much more we can continue to contemplate and rejoice in. And so I simply ask God that we would remember these truths and live in light of them, these exhortations, that we would rest on the promise that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, that we are comforted actually by your justice and your wrath against all unrighteousness, sobering in our thoughts against how our sin angers you, that we might live in such a way to avoid sin, resist temptation, and honor you with our lives. God, would you make this so in our faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.